0: Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Toyota Brookhaven has been voted best new car dealership in Southwest Mississippi four years in a row. Come see the difference. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver.
1: This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi.
0: Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines
1: Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. It is a Tuesday. Right here in the midst of January. The legislature down there in session. They'll be be in full swing today, of course, making them laws. Uh, Coming on the program today at 11.05, Representative Becky Curry. She represents Copiah Lawrence in Lincoln counties, or District 92 covers some or all of those counties. And chairperson of the House Tourism Committee, vice chair of House Rules Committee, Mike McCormick, the president of the Mississippi Farm Bureau Federation, on the program at 12.05, Mike will discuss legislation the agricultural community in Mississippi is eyeing during this 2023 session. So we should have some informative interviews today. I enjoyed having Senator Horn on yesterday. You know, the senator and I, we don't align on, completely at least, on public policy or the role of government. But he comes in here. We always have a very engaging discussion. I think it is informative. I hope the folks feel that way out there in nature. I certainly do. And so I appreciate him coming in, and we can have a, a cordial, respectful exchange. That's the way it should be. We just don't happen to agree on some situations. I think we have the same goal which is to make Mississippi better. All aspects of life in the state. Let's make it better. We just differ on how to get there. That, that is the essence of democratic debate. Not to be confused, Rhino, with the Democrat Party, please. I think I did term that correctly. <laughs> Some people get bent out of shape about that. Call you a liar, you know. You do that.
2: because they have nothing better to do with their time than to be perpetually (laughs) butthurt.
1: Oh, man. So, yesterday, (laughs) the president, he goes up to... (laughs) Where was he? Somewhere where (laughs) he was singing happy birthday (laughs) to... The great Martin Luther King's daughter-in-law. And uh, this was at a luncheon that the president attended on MLK Day. <laughs> this was... Um, was it a luncheon or a breakfast? Was it the annual It, it was the breakfast? breakfast. You're correct. This was a lengthy speech, by the way. A very lengthy speech. My bad. It was a... It was a uh, a breakfast. I believe this is an annual event, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, right? The National Action Network's annual MLK Day Breakfast. Let me make sure we get that straight, setting the stage here. A lengthy speech. I mean, he went all over the place. But as part of the speech, he decided he was going to sing, and I mean it by sing Happy Birthday to Martin Luther King's daughter-in-law daughter-in-law we got some sound here for you you might want to listen up to this one
0: but congratulations today the honorees uh, including your wife uh, who I understand uh, is it birthday today well look my wife has a rule in her family on somebody's birthday, sing "Happy Birthday." You ready? Yeah. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear valentine. <laughs> happy birthday to you. <laughs> well, it's hell turning
1: thirty, but you got to. <laughs> the best reporters could do in in trying to figure out exactly what he said vows to (laughs) this I can't quit laughing at it yeah I saw
2: about seven different attempts at spelling what came out of his mouth
1: (laughs) Uh, he could have he knew it was MLK's daughter-in-law he could have just said Mrs. King and been okay right her name Andre, Arn, Andrea, Andrea Waters King. But instead he said, Vows of to... <laughs> I can't stop laughing about it. What was he saying there? How could he do that? Not be embarrassed, and then immediately proceed with like a 30-minute speech? Dear Vows to... <laughs> Oh, that's sad. That is sad. Oh, but don't forget... As he told us on Sunday, that was the speech he made at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church allegedly (laughs) Senator Raphael Warnock is a pastor. And I happened to tune in to that one. I watched that whole deal live. I I told you yesterday, everybody in the background seated behind him at the podium there, I guess that would be where the choir would typically go, right? Behind the pastor. They all pulled them black masks off. It's such a virtue-signaling bunch of garbage.
2: They yeah, it's kind do- of hard to take it seriously when in one part of his speech they're all wearing masks. In another part, they're not. And they put like, them what's, on and took them what's, off. What's, what's, the, what's the point here? <laughs> you haven't moved from your seat. You're still right there next to the person you were next to. huh. <laughs>
1: And he said, I'm I'm going to read it. This is from the White House site. This would be the the text of his speech. Aye, aye, and let's lay one thing to rest. I may be a practicing Catholic. Uh, We used to go to 7.30 Mass every morning in high school and going into college before I went to the black church. Not a joke. Andy knows this. I don't know who Andy is there, somebody in attendance. Andy, it's great to see you, man. (laughs) You're one of the greatest we've ever had. You really are. And I took on apartheid in South Africa and a whole lot else. He's just lying about all this. He got arrested in a civil rights march, didn't he say? Didn't he claim that as well? He's just a habitual, prolific liar to the point where I don't think he knows the difference between the truth and lies.
2: There's a word for that. What's that? Pathological. (laughs) Now you're
1: getting clinical. (laughs) But it does fit here, doesn't it? But have you noticed the left-wing media? They're starting to fold on
2: him here. They really are. They're starting to fold on him. It's because they really don't want to go the way of CNN. (laughs) Which is (laughs) worth like nothing. CNN went from the top of the mountain where you couldn't turn around without being in a public space and somebody was playing CNN to being gung-ho partisan when they're supposed to be news and now they are in the crapper and struggling I, I mean their ratings way down in
1: fact they need trump to be president their ratings literally were up because it was just the trump show Every day. MSNBC, too. In fact, MSNBC, old Joe Scarborough over there, he's melting down. I just sent you some sound right before the program. I think we got it here, huh? Take a listen. But by
0: by, by by stumbling and bumbling around, by not getting their timeline right, by by, we're still saying we have an. I, I, we just showed a graph that says an unknown number of documents found in Biden's correct. No, no more unknown. No more unknown. At this stage, we're two months in. They need to clean this up. They
1: need to get, you know, it, 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 you know, amateur hour is over. Struggling there, isn't he? <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. He's having a hard time accept, accepting personally that he's blasting his hero like this. That's what's going on. But they can't defend it. They simply cannot defend it. It's,
2: it is amateur hour. It's a comedy of errors. No doubt about it. And who well, hires lawyers to pack up things? I don't get that either. That's an expensive moving
1: crew. I totally agree. And just, I think Americans are sick of the double standard in the two tier system of justice we seem to have created in this country. When we come back, I got to tell you what San Francisco is thinking about with respect to reparations. Middays is in the Element Well studios. Coming right back after this break.
0: Middays with Gerard What? What?
3: This is so awesome
0: on Super Talk, Mississippi.
1: Back, everyone, to midday, Super Talk, Mississippi. Okay, I laughed so hard on the break. <laughs> now I'm a little hoarse. <laughs> Gotta drink some water. I I laugh because those of you who were old, old enough to remember the great comic whose shtick was playing the part of a drunk, Foster Brooks. You guys remember that? <laughs> and he was. Um, I would appear on the variety shows of the 70s, the Dean Martin show is the one that comes to mind. Dean, of course, was uh, kind of always associated with being drunk (laughs) and drinking uh, rather (laughs) liberally, and Foster Brooks played the part of a drunk, fantastic, in in his uh, comedic acting there, but You remember the Celebrity Roast, Don Rickles and that whole group, Dean Martin, Celebrity Roast. And Foster would frequently, was a member of what it was, the Friars Club or something. And he would frequently be called upon to roast the guest of honor that's being roasted. And he would just deliver his speech flawlessly as a drunk. And after I watched that Joe Biden clip for the third time, I couldn't help but think and be reminded, think about and be reminded of Foster Brooks. That's what it reminded me of, stumbling over the word (laughs) and just noise coming out of his mouth. So we got Foster Brooks for president. (laughs) I think it's a fair comparison. I really do. Foster Brooks. (laughs) Oh, gosh. It's sad. It, It really is. I told Rhino on the break, you know, it's not that he gets in the middle of the happy birthday song, doesn't know the name of the person to whom he's singing, and just noise comes out of his mouth. No, what's bothersome is that he he doesn't seem to possess the cognitive ability, the the logical skills, to sequence the thoughts such that, you know, before I launch into happy birthday here, I need to know the name of a person that uh, that we're going to to uh, to sing to. I mean, it's this happens like in restaurants, for example. They'll find out from somebody who has ordered and informed the waitstaff. Someone on the waitstaff. It's so and so in my party's birthday. What's the name again? And they'll write it down. And they'll come. And they'll sing. Or sometimes there's other substitute language, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, is there are
2: some versions of happy birthday, because that's where you get into the whole happy birthday is copyrighted. And I oh, believe it was geez. Paul McCartney that wound up with the rights to it at one point. Oh, so any time a restaurant would sing it, they were legally supposed to send him a check and all that kind of nonsense. So that's how you get the, like Applebee's, the happy, happy birthday from Applebee's yeah, to you, like right. that kind of stuff, where yeah. they make up their own. It's not like there aren't variations, and especially somebody that has spent so much time behind the microphone. I mean, this guy has five (laughs) decades of public service, in quotes, behind the microphone, flapping his gums, and he never picked up the drunk rock star thing of, oh, I forgot my line, stick the mic out to the crowd, let them sing it. Exactly. Oh,
1: yes. Uh, Excellent analysis. It's, it's, It's worrisome. At a minimum. But this guy's got classified docs in his garage. Have no fear. Gee whiz. Why doesn't our state government look to invest the extra money in stocks, diverse funds? I think Norway does something similar on the ceasefire text line. That's during our show, but we haven't talked about that. Is that just a random question there? we'll We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, this is... A, uh, this is uh, No, here we go. After going to Sunday Mass and then Black Church, Biden played in the Negro Baseball Leagues. You might have heard of him, Shoeless Joe. Well, that's a good one. I wouldn't be surprised if he made a claim to that. Of course, one of his huge whoppers is when he had the uh, the Dodgers, I believe, after they won the World Series. It's customary for the World Series champions to make a visit to the White House with the sitting president of the time. That happened to be Joe Biden. And uh, he shared with them a story about (laughs) a hit he got in the congressional baseball game of like 1989 or something like that. I don't remember. It was even farther
2: back than that. I think it was 77 or 73. I think it was in the 70s. Okay, so
1: some at some point during there are
2: so many lies, it's hard to keep up with all of them.
1: <laughs> we need a lie tracker, a lieometer. And he and he happened to inform the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers professional baseball players. Yeah, I remember when I hit a double off the wall in the congressional baseball game in the seventies or whatever year, and, and the fact checkers were busy checking out the uh, the scorebooks. And they found no he struck out (laughs) why would you lie about that you didn't hit a double off the wall
2: because he's using the same old playbook he's used ever since he got into Washington long before you had digital fact-checking in your pocket on a smartphone that's true long before people were checking every single thing that you have about your persona so he just uses the old playbook of well who am i talking to all right here's my story about how i'm related to that that's why when he's talking to truckers he talks about how he drove an 18 wheeler even though he never did that's why when he had the baseball team up there he talks about doing something in baseball that he never did that's why when he's at a church he talks about going to two different churches that he didn't go to
1: i wonder why he thinks that's
2: so important
1: to try to I guess bond and maybe even empathize a bit and I, and I know that empathy is a is a, a laudable human quality but that doesn't mean you have to lie you can still be empathetic with the fate of the truck drivers or whoever the audience is the folks there at the Ebenezer Baptist Church but to lie about it i was in there with you attending the black church we were getting ready to organize our civil rights protest no you weren't i you got arrested with
2: you. nelson mandela no you didn't
1: <laughs> why do you have to lie
2: like that and
1: they just they're clapping like train seals eating it up with their masks on <laughs>
2: That's exactly why, because the trained seals that vote for Democrats lap it up. That's sad. All for political gain. William
1: and Brandon on the ceasefire text line. Biden saying, not a joke. It's like a redneck saying, this ain't no BS. You immediately know a lie is on the way. That's a great point there, William. (laughs) Chris from Oxford says, uh, let's see, I got out of the truck. Yesterday, So I didn't hear anything. But did you get my 10 tinfoil hat? I sent you. I have figured out on the documents Biden had. Nobody else is saying this but me. I'm sort of proud of it. The Democrats exposed this, in my opinion. This is their way of making him not run in the next election because nobody is supporting him, not even showbiz. Um, I don't think they really wanted this. I do think they wanted him to run in the next election. But I, because there's just nobody on the bench, honestly. It's Kamala next up, generally speaking. Yeah. And she is wildly unpopular, to say the least. Couldn't get through, what, two uh, primaries and did terrible in both and was consistently at the bottom of the polls of the field.
2: Yeah, the only real play she got in the media was her attacking her now boss, President Biden, for being racist and bussing.
1: That's true. And that little girl was me. I Who could forget that? So I don't know, Chris, I um, because I don't think they have anybody. I think they really wanted this guy to hang in there and that his uh, administration would be free from scandal. And now it's not. Now, here's the question. In two years, will anybody care about this? I don't know. I have seen some recent polls that show him ahead in a head to head match, ahead in polls of Donald Trump behind DeSantis. I think the Suffolk University poll revealed that. It'd be interesting. Carol and in Starkville, time to let the old man go. Correction, retire. <laughs> yeah, the Dean Martin celebrity roast. Tony and Saltillo reminds. Yeah, appreciate that. Saltilla. Saltillo. Saltillo. Okay, yeah. I tell you, I'm, I'm going to have to explain why I mispronounce it, and I, I deeply apologize. Because I was involved, true story here, I'm not lying, folks. <laughs> <laughs> my church, growing up, my Catholic church, had Saltillo, Mexico, I think I pronounced that correctly. Satillo, I think is the way we said it. Right. That was a mission city that we sort of adopted and took care of. So, apologize for the confusion there. But we got you, Tony. And Saltillo is the way we say that. Yep, I got it. I'm not Joe Biden, dang it. it. (laughs) Malzavet. Happy birthday, dear (laughs) Malzavet. Great song here. Can you play this "Bump on His Back" in San Francisco? I'm going to talk about the reparations. We're in the Element Well Studios. Hang around.
3: will be a loving bear. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for
0: midday's with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. <laughs>
1: Scott McKenzie, the anthem of the Summer of Love, 1967. (laughs) Go look at a Scott McKenzie about the time he recorded that song, and then look at a photo of him in his later years. Let's just say time wasn't a friend to Mr. McKenzie. Jeez. So... I uh, once again want to apologize for my mis- mispronunciation, Saltillo in Mississippi. Just for the heck of it, I did um, I did look it up as far as the pronunciation is concerned for the city in Mexico, Saltillo. <laughs> this Google machine is pretty cool, isn't it? I think that Internet may catch on one day. <laughs>
2: what is this, email thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that like a digital letter? Exactly. Fax it to me! <laughs> I
1: remember, in the seriously, in the early days when the facsimile came onto the scene, was popularized, that in the technology industry, you would uh, be able to dial a phone number to the makers, the manufacturer of certain products? Because there was no Internet, so you couldn't go look it up and view product information, specifications, brochures, digital brochures, PDFs and so forth, and you would essentially call a number and then it would prompt you to enter your fax number, and you'd enter that, and it faxed that product info to you. And we almost, like, needed a full-time person just to retrieve the faxes and sort them out and, and put them in our little mailboxes, you know. Think about how, how things have changed since then. It's, really, it's so unproductive. And then you could also fax it to a customer. You'd enter their fax number, and they'd go to their fax machine and pull those documents up. And they were only black and white back then, and it required a lot of heat, to create the image on paper, and the paper would all always come out like curled up, you know, fo- uh, folded up somewhat from the heat on the uh, on the paper material itself. Interesting. Tony and in Saltillo said, "Well, my last name is Sansillo. Did I say that right, Tony? I didn't know that. Appreciate you letting us know that." He said, "That's a mouthful, Mr. President. I mean Gerard. It's no joke, man. No joke. <laughs> Every time he says that, what does he mean by that? It's no joke. No joke. Oh, gosh. Well, so I got to get into the weeds a little bit with respect to some of his lies about economic policy, economic activity, economic measurements. He's still on this kick about the Republicans blasting Democrats for being big spenders. And while he didn't talk about the debt ceiling, which, by the way, is due for some action on Thursday, just a couple of days away, this showdown is looming up there in Washington, he says, they're going to talk, this is Joe Biden referring to the Republicans, they're going to talk about big spending Democrats again. Guess what? He likes to say that a lot, doesn't he? I reduced the deficit last year $350 billion. And this year, the federal deficit is down $1 trillion plus. Hear me, that's a fact. Here are the facts, Mr. President. It is absolutely true that the deficit between 20 and 21 shrunk by 300 and plus billion. That's because Republicans and Democrats spent like crazy on COVID relief. No no question about that, producing a $3.2 trillion deficit in Donald Trump's last year in office. Absolutely no doubt. Now, that extended into 21. Joe Biden takes office. And the deficit does come down simply because we didn't spend as much money on COVID relief. And then in 2022, it comes down again. All that is absolutely true. What he said. But what he's not telling you. Is that the 2021 deficit was 2.8 trillion dollars? It did come down. It did come down to what a one point one point five. This year it's set to be one point four. So what? What is this accomplishment in a one point four? Trillion dollar deficit. It was 3 1 in 20, 2 8 in 21, about, uh, about 2 1 or so, I believe, in 22, and that was because of the $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, which was totally unnecessary. So this year, there's no American Rescue Plan, there's no big COVID spending, talking about fiscal year 23, and the CBO projects 1.4. That just doesn't make any sense. Why are you boasting about that? There's there's no accomplishment there. We're still running trillion-dollar deficits. Trillion dollars. 25% of total spending deficit
2: spending because if you talk about how much you've quote-unquote cut people might be more accepting of the democrats that are floating the idea of we need another stimulus to help people during the economic downturn that's
1: That's probably true you mean the same thing to produce these deficits we need to do more of it oh that makes a lot of sense
2: it's almost like the d stands
1: for dumb (laughs) Oh, gosh, so we, I, I say again, it's it's like digging a hole and then filling it back up with the same dirt you dug out and bragging about it. You didn't achieve anything. There was a hole there. You filled it up. You dug it out, you filled it up. What did you do? What did you produce? We're on track for another $1.4 trillion deficit, this, of course, in the wake of the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill recently signed into law. But the 21 deficit, so he's bragging about the difference between 21 and 22, and now 22 and 23. And, that's again, that's just like saying, well, we're overdrawn, but just not as much. You're not really producing anything. And you, you generated the outsized deficit by insisting that we had to have this American Rescue Plan. And let's be honest, here in the state of Mississippi, our municipalities, our counties, our state government, flush with all this money, busy spending it. I think everybody we've had on the show from the legislature has indicated that that's one of their tasks during this session, is to allocate the remaining money from the ARPA, the American Rescue Plan. $1.9 $1.9 trillion. No Republican supported that, in fairness. But that's what ballooned the deficit in his first year in office. So then in his second year in office, it comes down because you don't have that as part of the spending mix. You don't have that $1.9 trillion bill. You ran the deficit up, and then you just didn't repeat the same mistake, and then you brag about it. I don't get that. I just don't get it. And you won't explain this in a truthful manner to the American people. You just won't do it. And they lap it up. So he goes on to say there's going to be hundreds of billions reduced over the next decade. No, there's not. There's not a single projection from any reliable, reputable source, including Biden's own government that says over the next decade, deficits will come down. He says these guys are the fiscally, well, they're fiscally demented. That is his way of describing Republicans. They're fiscally demented, I think. They don't quite get it. It's you that doesn't get it. You're just being disingenuous in your characterization of our deficit history, what caused it and what you did to bring it down. What you did was nothing, as in you just didn't repeat the same mistake. You increased traditional domestic spending. It You did, under your watch. That's producing deficits that are lower than when you had covid aid but there's still 1.4 trillion dollars coming right back on midday's representative becky curry at 1105
0: come on. come on midday's with gerard gibbert
3: all right we are
0: back on super talk mississippi
1: Good there, the great Paul Revere and the Raiders. You know, he passed away not too long ago, a year or so. Kicks is my favorite Raiders tune, by the way. That was that was uh, kind of a social activist song intended to persuade a young lady to stay off of drugs. It's a good tune. A lot of people think that the Paul Revere figure was... Mark, can't remember his last name, the lead singer, was actually the keyboardist. That's the guy who passed away too long ago. You looking it up? Mark something. Can't remember his name. Mark Lindsay? That's it. Yep. Thank you. <clears throat> so just to recap, before I talk about these this reparations plan, hang in there with me on this. I know we get kind of convoluted with all these financial figures. Real simple. Think about COVID. 2020, the big COVID year, our government goes crazy, spends a whole bunch of money. You remember the CARES Act, $2.1 trillion? Just prior to that, the Families First Coronavirus Act, $900 billion. So $3 trillion between those two bills enacted within about 60 days of each other. We produce a deficit. In fiscal year 2020, $3.1 trillion, Biggest deficit in the history of these United States. Driven, of course, largely by the coronavirus relief spending. 2021, Joe Biden's in office. Could have left everything alone. We were cruising. Inflation, 1.4%. Gas, two bucks and change. Folks going back to work. Economy on its own reopening. No no. They gotta stick their fingers in it and passed a one point nine trillion dollar trillion dollar American rescue plan, as it is labeled. We generate a deficit of two point eight, which is $300 three hundred trillion, three hundred billion less than the three point one of twenty twenty. They take victory laps. We reduced the deficit. Okay, and so the next year, which would be twenty twenty two, we don't pass an American rescue plan. Sort of back to normal, if you will, if you could call it that. No no extraordinary spending bills, let's put it that way. So we produce a deficit one point four trillion. And Joe brags about it. And we're on track this year, and he says in fact, let me read this from Nancy Pelosi. As Republicans yelled about deficits and threatened to quote balance the budget on the backs of seniors, Democrats delivered real results, growing our economy, protecting social security and Medicare and reducing the deficit from 2.6 to 1.4 trillion. Wrong, Nancy, it was 2.8. I did verify that. It is true it went to 1.4. You're bragging about a $1.4 trillion deficit. And the only reason that occurred is because you didn't pass another American rescue plan. The CBO says on 2023, we're in line for another $1.4 trillion deficit. And those will continue. Now, just for comparative sake, folks, in 2019, pre-COVID, Trump's third year in office. The deficit, nothing to brag about, but it was 984 billion under a trillion. So 984, COVID hits, 3.1 American rescue plan, 2.8, all that's gone. Now it's 1.4. So if you compared the 2 years of Biden's presidency without extraordinary COVID relief spending to the pre-Biden era, He's run the deficit up $500 billion. Why doesn't anybody see this? That's what. That's the valid, meaningful comparison. Take the COVID crap out of there. Those two years where we went nuts spending money. No doubt. Republicans complicit as well. Not giving them a pass in that. But that's the real comparison. Yet he says Republicans are financially demented, fiscally demented. Speaking of fiscally demented in San Francisco, you remember we shared a story not too long ago, Rhino, Governor Gavin Newsom formed a task force to explore reparations to African-American Californians. 233000 per individual was the proposal. Well, San Francisco says, hold my beer. They are proposing, you ready for this? $5 million dollars. Five million dollars per African American inhabitant
2: of the city by the bay. Five million bucks. Now I didn't they... realize Gavin Newsom was so flush. <laughs> Such a generous man. Oh wait, you mean taxpayers got to pay him that much? <sighs> now this is a city that is awash
1: in woke crime. Just let them out. Homeless, drug abuse. It's deteriorated substantially. And they want to give five billion dollars away. Where are they gonna get that from? Five million, pardon me. Five million per inhabitant. Five million, you heard me right. Coming back after the news with Representative Becky Curry.
0: And now and now the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to.
1: Everyone, hour two of midday super talk Mississippi. We are once again in the Element Wealth Studios. It's a bit humid out there today. Rhino Representative Becky Curry joining us now. Uh, you can like cut it with a knife out there. It
4: is. Yeah. It's it's January too. What's the deal?
1: I don't know. I don't like that in January. Typically, it uh, foretells of bad weather, severe weather. Hopefully, that is not the case. Hadn't looked at the forecast. Appreciate you coming in, Representative Curry. Uh, we should start out. We have a mutual friend that i 've actually talked about on the show and um have not revealed the name of this individual, but I think he'd be perfectly fine with us he with it. He has been in the hospital now uh dealing with a, a heart issue for about a month I it- think.
4: Right, our friend is Bill Billingsley, and if he's mad at anybody, he can be mad at me. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Bill was my boss for a long time.
1: I did know that. Now that you say it, yeah. I remember him talking yeah. about that. Yeah.
4: And we became good friends, and uh, we both loved politics, and just always talked politics. And uh, so I'm I'm glad to hear he's doing better
1: back home. Back as of home. yesterday, that's right. Looks and like he's got a great prognosis. That's and, right. Yeah. I
4: give a shout out to him and and his wife Stephanie. I, yeah. I, Thinking about him and praying about him a lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great people, and uh, so glad that the outcome was positive. You know, he was ready to get out of that Ooh, hospital. You know, he was. <laughs> this happened the week before Christmas. I know. And so he spent the entire holiday period in the dang hospital. And uh, but we're glad that he is out and at home and resting comfortably, and looks like he's on his way to a full recovery. And we're which so which is happy. remarkable. It, it truly is, right? No doubt about it. So appreciate you um, pointing that out here. So there you go, folks. That's our good friend that I've talked about. In fact, the today he had surgery last week. I was really concerned. That's it's no uh, simple procedure. That no, he it had wasn't. Last week. Yeah, but and, he fared uh, well. He so. did well. Yeah, so good we're team happy. there. Yeah. All right. So you guys have been uh, down there at the Capitol for a little over two weeks, and all in session. Uh, what's going on with respect to just high profile issues that are, that are getting a lot of buzz? What are you hearing down there at this point?
4: Well, of course, we're looking at income tax or some kind of tax. I think uh, you know the best one that people have seen so far is your car tag. You know, the, the one you can go in and see immediately is the one that you like the most. Uh, so we cut a great deal on your car tags, and I'm proud of that. You know, I'm, I want to say that I'm proud to be a part of this legislature that has gotten Mississippi in the best financial shape of, of our history and uh, we can't say that in, in dc you know it's a completely different ball game so yeah. i'm real um, happy about that so we're looking at more ways to give people back their money and um you know hopefully we can do it i've I like a lot of people would love to see the grocery tax cut, especially for the elderly and uh, and, and poor people. It, it's very hard right now with inflation, and so I'd, I'd like to look at things that y- you can see immediately.
1: Yeah, so certainly those are are two. I think options that do uh, help in that regard, a lot of folks are still anxious to potentially see full elimination. I know the Speaker's made that his top priority. There's no secret there. No,
4: there's not. And he is definitely looking at it. And um, I, I know that the Senate has different versions. And, and, you know, in a couple of months, we will we may know which version we're going with.
1: Yeah. The difference of of viewpoints there, I think the Senate's more inclined to just issue a one-time rebate. Certainly the lieutenant governor favors that approach uh, a a little more tentative and hesitant to just start working on total elimination, whereas the Speaker believes we can do it. And then we had Representative Trey Lamar from uh, Ways and Means on last week talking about that as well. That, That seems to be... A, a high priority to him and his efforts and his uh, his chairmanship. So we'll see where that goes. That should be interesting. the uh, The one issue that that I have asked everybody about that I certainly posed this question to you as well to get your take on it is the citizen ballot initiative that, uh, of course, has been nullified essentially by the Supreme Court of Mississippi based on the Initiative sixty five lawsuit brought by Mayor. Uh, Mary of uh, Madison and so the Supreme Court found in favor of the city and said yeah this really doesn't match up with our congressional districts and so the law as it stands presently in our Constitution is invalid if you will so we had a house bill we had a Senate bill we couldn't get any congruence there and therefore we didn't get a bill to the governor what do you think is going to happen in this session
4: well, um, we didn't like the Senate bill. Uh, it added more signatures, yeah. and you know, we were taking it out of the Constitution was the most important thing. Let's just face it; we don't want anything uh, to mess with our Constitution. But uh, it's very difficult to get those signatures. I, I've participated in those before, and in, and it's very hard yeah. to, to get uh, that many signatures in that many congressional districts. So I thought that the we shouldn't make it harder. Yeah. to let the people have a voice. yeah And so I'm there. That's where I am. Don't make it harder, but we've got to get, be able to give this back to the people. We cannot walk away this year without doing that.
1: I, I will report that it's probably the number one issue that that I hear about out in public that that's the one thing that was kind of uh, left unfinished by the legislature last year. They still feel like that hey, the people are out here uh, just just kind of on an island. They're, they're a boat adrift at sea without any mechanism That's to right. uh, you know to bring something up for a vote That's across right. the state.
4: And we, we cannot leave them without a voice.
1: Okay. Well, hopefully we'll get something this year. So let's talk about uh, your committees. Uh, why don't we start with the House Tourism Committee? Okay. What do we have going on there?
4: Well, you know, we did a really big bill last year uh, for ARPA funds, and um, unfortunately, um, the cities that participated in that haven't received their money yet. So right. it's kind of hard going back in uh, for for more. But, you know, the governor vetoed a lot of bills. So we have more money in the ARPA fund. So hmm. I want to come back and do another tourism bill. Uh, for every dollar, you get back 13 in tourism. Hmm. So, you know, it. it it's the only committee that that makes money. Uh, we usually dole money out. <laughs> yeah, it's a
1: revenue-producing. <laughs> That's right. Entity. which is
4: which is wonderful. And we have so much going on in the state of Mississippi every day. There's something somebody new coming up with something. I want to tell you about a fund bill. We don't have too much fun going on in the, in government, but sure. uh, it's been brought to my attention from um, some geologists at the University of Southern Mississippi that we are rich in opal. Hmm. We don't have a uh, state gem, and we don't, unfortunately, have diamonds and rubies, but uh, we have opals, and... uh Copiah hmm. County, which is part of my district, yep. is one of the counties that is very rich in this. Uh, so we're going to make the opal, since it's our only gemstone, hmm. uh, our state gemstone, and just try to do some things like, wouldn't it be fun to see kids? Uh, Camp Kamasa yeah. is in part of the district where in it's grew up, County, in Copiah right? yeah. County. And kids are going to go there. And they could, uh, you know, these people from UM uh, the University of Southern Mississippi, they are so excited. They want to come and teach you how to, to look for opals.
1: That's cool. Yeah, isn't that yeah, cool? Yeah, that's neat. So, something fun.
4: That's right. Yeah. we got to have something Need fun. Need
1: that. All right, so something that ain't fun right now <laughs> is health care in the state of Mississippi, no, which not. is uh, seems to be, if not already, they're headed for crisis level
4: it's past crisis level it's it's about to be uh extremely bad we have a lot of hospitals that are on the line Where uh, our hospital where i live lost money last year and you're going to see a lot of problems and um you know i've i've been in healthcare all my life i'm a registered nurse and you know i've been supportive of us looking at different things to help our health care um and we all know our insurance companies are doing well. You know, they they making uh, billions of dollars a year, uh, but yet they don't pay our um, hospitals and providers like they should. That's the reason you saw UMC, you know, and Blue Cross in such a battle. Um, and. If other hospitals had joined the battle, we might have done better. But it, it's just something that we have got to sit down and look at. You know, you look at hospitals and say, oh, they send me a big bill. They're making tons of money, but they're not.
1: Yeah. No, they're not. Um, and, and we'll get into that uh, on the other side of the break. We've got Representative Becky Curry in the Element Well Studios coming right back on midday. Stay with us. Right.
0: talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part.
3: Dino-mite.
0: on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: What?
1: Welcome back, everyone. Middays in the Element Wealth Studios. Thomas in Greenwood wants to know, are there any hospitals in financial trouble in states that expanded Medicaid? I can answer that question real quick for you, Thomas. Every single hospital in the country is in trouble. The entire industry is about to implode. And, and I could sit here and send you dozens of articles from industry analysts. I don't mean from government that substantiate this. It is a nationwide problem. The the issue is that there's just too much uncompensated care, and that doesn't come solely in the form of patients who are receiving medical care that don't have any insurance. I'm told, Representative Curry, by my close friends that are in the hospital management business, I'm not talking about doctors who are just focused on delivering medical care. They don't get into all the details of the financial, and don't want them to, honestly. But the people who are responsible for making the numbers work, one of the things I've learned in the last few weeks is the high number of defaults that we have on the patient responsibility of care. I'm a patient. I've got insurance. I go to the hospital, and, and I get some ridiculously expensive uh, medical care, and insurance pays for it, uh, but I'm left with perhaps part of the cost because I'm still in the deductible period, or I have copays, or what have you. They just don't pay it, and so the hospitals are telling me they've got a huge amount of just delinquent accounts that they end up sending to collections who don't pay, and even if they do, they still only get two thirds of that generally speaking, which is upside down because the collection agent gets the third for for uh, collecting the outstanding balance so that's a problem as well so to Thomas to your question this isn't just about Medicaid expansion it's about just the the financial difficulties. In the healthcare industry overall, in general, and I think this is a debate that's going to get a lot of attention during this session. Your thoughts?
4: Well, I I do too, and I have to tell you, uh, I, I want everybody to realize that the only people who do not gripe are insurance companies who are making billions of dollars a year but not paying our uh, providers. And I'm going to tell you something, when you have a heart attack or a stroke in your hometown and your hospital's closed because they cannot pay their bills or their staff or uh, they're running on a skeleton crew, you're going to lose business. Business is not coming to your town because you've got to have a hospital standing there. Your health care suffers. So there's there's something that has to be done everybody's got to come to the table and say what can we do to save our health care and your bill gerard and my bill is so high because we're paying for 10 of other people who don't have insurance no doubt so when when you say well you know what can we do to lower the cost of health care everybody has got to come to the table and and we've got to come up with something whether it's looking at expansion uh, whether it is, you know, having insurance companies, you know, sit down and say, we're actually going to pay your hospital or your provider a decent wage. That's exactly what happened with UMC and Blue Cross. You know, they want to pay the hospital pennies on the dollar and that them continue to make billions of dollars a year and your healthcare suffers. So, uh, you know, it, it, Uh, I hate to say this, but government has allowed this to happen, Uh, and with a lot of people for a lot of years saying something's got to be done, I'm proud of UMC for stepping up and saying, you know, we're not going to take it anymore, but, you know... it didn't get them very far. Uh, I think they have ended up signing a contract, and I, I don't know what it is is for, but uh, we need a lot of hospitals, but they're all suffering. It's hard to stand up and be the rebel when, when you're broke.
1: Yeah. So we've got... Uh, I, I was just sharing this with you on the break uh the Kaiser Family Foundation's probably the most credible most complete source of everything related to health care policy in this country has been for decades that's right and uh, i I've, I've been subscribing reading uh, their information their publications for for years and it, it's it's great great information so a, according to and they're one of the probably the main Uh, media sources and, and research firms that tracks insurance coverage in terms of the numbers and how they receive coverage across the country and by state. So right now, Medicaid is covering 90 million Americans, which is astonishing. When you think about a country of 320, 30 million, almost a third of them are covered by Medicaid, which is free. Health care coverage, essentially. To somebody.
3: To somebody. That's <laughs> right. To somebody.
1: So we've got this pandemic health emergency, or I should say public health emergency, P-H-E, at the federal level which is uh, was instituted in 2020 that increased the federal payment to states for Medicaid and also had a continuous enrollment provision that blocked states from disenrolling anybody if they're no longer eligible. Our roles here in Mississippi have swollen considerably as a result of that.
4: And not just not eligible, but age out
1: yeah that's right you know
4: that's you right. still have it if you aged out
1: yeah that's exactly right so now um and that would be under the chip and the children's provisions mm-hmm. and so forth right which is a big chunk of that so now this thing comes to an end uh in uh, march 30 30th is when it comes to an end, meaning that states can return to investigating those on their roles and disenroll them if they're no longer eligible plus we're going to We're no longer going to receive the enhanced 6.2% FMAC, the, the payments from the federal government. Well, that's going to be an issue for our budget that I'm hoping somebody's looking at with respect to Medicaid funding.
4: Well, I hope someone is looking at it, too. Um, You know, we have uh, very little conversation about Medicaid in the House. On the House side, I don't know about the Senate, but we have very, very little uh, conversation about
1: it. Yeah, and and I think it's uh, Senator Blackwell over on the Senate side, if I'm not mistaken. But then the other thing is that that, that our Medicaid can start disenrolling people who aren't eligible.
4: Before we're out of session.
1: Right. So I'm not sure what the plan is there. But this is coming, and I just don't hear anybody talking about it.
4: There's not Um, been any talk that I'm aware of on my side of the building.
1: We've gotten accustomed to this this federal largesse that was all uh, stemmed from COVID. If you think about just how much of that... I call it helicopter money. Just dropped out of helicopters across these United States, and we're no different here in Mississippi. We we have taken advantage of that. We're spending it all over the place.
4: Like no Republican voted for it in Congress, but right. the Republicans sure are spending it.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so this is this is uh, coming out as fast. And the other thing that I shared with Senator Horn yesterday, I'll share it with you as well. As there's some enhancements, uh, improvements, if you will, to the subsidy model and uh, the Affordable Care Act, such that uh, individuals or families whose household income is less than 150 percent of the federal poverty level can obtain private coverage for zero percent premium, we ought to be promoting the heck out of this,
4: which is Medicaid expansion.
1: Right, it's better mean, than Medicaid say, expansion. It, it, this is private
4: coverage. Absolutely, and and to not look at this is is um, irresponsible yeah. on our part, really. Um You know, we have. I've, I'm a nurse, and I deal with patients who can't afford insulin because the cost of insulin is sky high. Well, guess what? If you don't take care of your diabetes, you're going to be blind. You're going to lose a limb you're going to have heart disease the cost of that patient for not taking care of an insulin need is astronomical and so you if you would just look at it as a plan ahead we need to make sure that this patient that's going to lose their medicaid has this other program that's available to us at zero dollars don't
1: know anything about it and
4: nobody knows anything
1: about nope, it. nope not promoting it and then uh, I've shared the story before of of my visit to the NICU here at UMC and 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 speaking to the physicians there, a, a number of those babies that are in intensive care totally preventable with proper prenatal
3: care.
4: Absolutely, absolutely they are. Oh. And you know we used to do good prenatal care through our health departments, and I, I've hmm. it's another bill that I have okay. written. Okay. Okay. Uh, Medicaid patients had an OBGYN doctor and they were all seen through the health department. I'm not suggesting, I mean we have nurse practitioners now, but they have to go in for prenatal care because our NICU is the most expensive care you can pay for.
1: Ridiculously expensive.
4: Right. So we just we need to look at ways to prevent uh, the cost, and um, you know, it, it's it's past time. I've been saying it for. I've been screaming at for at the top of my I lungs. Had,
1: we had a lady here a couple of times. Her name is Getty Israel. I know. I know her. Okay. Yeah.
4: Should we be talking to her? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we
1: I I actually told her that I happen to know a few folks in the legislature <laughs> and in state government. I would encourage you to go back to our leaders and say, let's bring this lady in and just hear what she just has to listen. say. It made total sense to me, and she's not just stomping for Medicaid. In fact, what she said was, hey, look, if, if they won't follow the health recommendations, they're kicked off. They do. That's what she said. They do. So it it will it we will cost it. us
4: less than in the
1: long run. Exactly. Well I hope you'll take up uh, her uh, her offer to come speak to you guys about that I will appreciate it representative Becky Curry's been our guest on middays stay safe
0: FM is with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi.
1: The disco era with Copacabana. (laughs) There you go. Moe says Gerard texting with Paul this morning. I was surprised his guest from the Senate had not thought of my suggestion on the grocery tax. He stated that towns got back about 20% of the grocery tax, so I suggested the state eliminate their portion of the grocery tax and let the towns keep the portion. He liked the idea and hoped it might gain traction. That was actually brought up last year, Moe's. And so what it would mean is reducing the grocery tax such that the tax levied would be sufficient to cover the the current revenue from sales taxes received uh, by cities. And it is true that in most small towns, Taxes on groceries is significant to their revenue because in most small towns, the grocery stores are the generally the largest retailers in terms of sales. I mean, that makes sense. So I, I remember when the House bill was first released last year, you may recall this as well, Rhino, we, we had someone on our text line, I believe it was the mayor of Monticello, that, that, I don't know why that sticks in my head there somewhere in in south mississippi and was concerned about the uh, elimination of the grocery tax for that reason that that was uh, their primary source of revenue so just to clarify folks at the municipal level sales taxes is is the primary revenue generator for municipalities for counties it's property taxes state It's sales taxes, their portion of sales taxes, and then income taxes, and those are individual income taxes, corporate income taxes. There is a, um, gosh, what is it, an insurance tax as well. But for the most part, at the state level, it is sales taxes and the individual income taxes. Those two combined make up about 70 percent. Corporate income taxes... I think come in at about 11%. There's an insurance premium tax. Yeah, that's what I was trying to think of. That's 5% change. And then there's use taxes, which is just sales taxes in general. So that's the revenue model for the state. Municipalities, primarily um, sales taxes. Diversion is what it's called. So the sales taxes get paid to the state, and then the states divert those back to the municipality in which the sale was made where the tax was levied. That's how municipalities fund their operations. So that's a plausible idea, but I still don't think, obviously, Mose, it achieves the, the goal of full elimination of the income tax and the concept that taxing consumption is more efficient than taxing income. It, we talked last week about the fair tax, which, by the way, hasn't been voted on. I don't think it has, Rhino. You might want to check me on that. Remember, we talked about this extensively last week. We expected a vote last week in the House of Representatives, at the the U.S. House of Representatives. This is one of the concessions gained by the the holdouts on the support of McCarthy. They wanted a vote on the fair tax, which has been around for a long time.
2: Yeah, I'm seeing where it was introduced on the 9th and referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means on the 9th, but that was the last action. Okay, taken.
1: I think that's right, and that's where it sits. So it hasn't made it yet. But so, just so folks will know, I know a lot of people were pretty excited about the 20 or so holdouts during the Speaker election, that they felt like that the voice of, of those represented by those 20 and and, and their wishes wasn't really figuring into the debate as much as it should. Well, one of these key concessions that they wanted was a vote on the fair tax. Now, the fair tax would eliminate federal income taxes and convert our revenue generation at the federal level to a consumption tax, 23% of all consumption transactions, everything you buy would be subject, would be levied, I should say, uh, at this rate of 23%. And you would get what's called a prebate, prebate, which is literally a rebate from the federal government calculated as 23% of the federal poverty level as published by the federal government that applies to your household. The federal poverty level. If you've ever looked at those tables, uh, the uh, there's a value for a household of one, two, three, four, etc. Federal poverty level, and and that uh, that table, that matrix is used in determining eligibility for a host of federal benefits. Medicaid being one of them. Uh, subsidies in the Affordable Care Act exchanges probably gotten more use in that context than any time in our history. But a lot of the various federal redistribution programs and benefits are all ba- are all income-based in the, in the federal poverty level tables are what is used. Typically expressed as a percentage of the federal poverty level for your household. So that is... Uh, that's something, I think, that that is going to probably get on the table in the House of Representatives, but it sits in committee right now, is what you said, Ryan. And that's, that was the last I recall of it as well. well. Been in a week now, right? When was it referred to committee? The ninth? Right, yeah. yeah. So been in a week. We'll see. But how do you feel about that, folks? You'd be paying 23% on everything you buy, but you wouldn't have an income tax. Now, here's the argument you get from the left, and Joe Biden brought it up yesterday in his speech, as a matter of fact, is that it would be regressive in that there's some 50% of the households in this country pay zero income taxes. Now they'd be paying taxes, because they would be paying taxes on the stuff they buy. However, if your income is below the federal poverty level, that's offset by this rebate which means you'd have no taxes. So everybody whose income, their household income is below the federal poverty level, would pay no taxes, which is the way it is now. In fact, they not only pay no taxes, they get money back on their taxes, if they file a tax return, which is something that has come up in my discussions with my physician, administrative and hospital administrative friends, the number of people that they treat that don't have bank accounts, Don't file tax returns, because they've actually talked to them. Hey, did you know you might be eligible for this coverage in the exchanges now that's zero dollar premiums if your income is below 150% of the federal poverty level? They don't have any tax returns to validate that. That's what the government uses. What a mess. And Mississippi probably have a higher occurrence of that than any other state. I know we are the least banked state. Of the 50, meaning we have the highest percentage of our population that does not have a bank account than any other state. You've seen the statistics on that.
2: Oh, yeah. That's why well, so, you got a check cash in place just about everywhere you look. Exactly right. And honestly, that's where taxes are being collected.
1: It's not the rich people that Biden wants you to believe it is, that Nancy Pelosi says. The fiscally demented, is what Biden said. It's just interesting. Jeff says, uh, huh. I was hit by a drunk driver Friday evening and the lady tried to leave the scene, but thankfully police arrived just in time to stop her. That's mm. interesting. Hope you're okay and uh, everybody's fine there. I'll tell you what, if, you, if Washington, D.C. has their way, I don't think anybody will ever get arrested for any crime. You've been watching what's going on there? The city council voted unanimously. Essentially, to end legal action at a certain level under, for certain misdemeanors, and carjacking is among the list of crimes that they just want to discontinue prosecuting. The mayor, the mayor, the, one of the most woke mayors in the country, she vetoed it. Now they think they have the votes to override her veto. If I'm a criminal, I'm going to Washington, D.C., baby. You won't get locked up for anything. Take all the cars you want. This is nuts. We've said it so many times. There's a movement in this country in the name of equity. That's why I hate that crap. I really do. There's a movement to decriminalize crime and demonize the victims. They're the bad guys. They're the villains, the victims. You victims. What do you mean you won't give me your car? That's where we're headed. This is nuts. On top of the $5 million of reparations. In the name of equity, of course. That's equitable? This stuff is out of control, and it is engulfing this country in every corner of society, and it's disturbing at a minimum. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well Studios Mike McCormick the president of Mississippi Farm Bureau Federation at 1205 stay with us
3: You know what that means
0: Midday's with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. It would not surprise me that if between now in November and I just I use November as as the date because that's when we hold elections that one or more hospitals in the state fail or change their service model dramatically so i read this morning that a number of hospitals across the country are dropping their maternity services. No surprise there. All losing money at it. All of these that are dropping. So that just means less access, which also probably causes more results in more problematic uh, pregnancies and deliveries. I'm just thinking, but maybe not the case. But they're doing it, of course, to save money. And in the report I read, one of those cited was Greenwood LaFleur. And this examined hospitals across the country that are dropping halting maternity services and closing rural obstetrics, pardon me, services as well. And we're having higher rates of preterm births and out-of-hospital births. That's actually going up, which is hard to believe. This, you would think, would increase that figure, increase that occurrence. I don't know what the solution is. Thomas and Greenwood, of course the compassionate individual that he is, says they just ought to die on the street. No, I'm just kidding. He does ask a question. I don't see how it's conservative to support expansion. Again, Thomas, I'll just say to you, there is no consensus definition of conservative. That's not not a statement in favor of Medicaid expansion. It's just a statement of fact. There are different levels of that. And we could parse this to the cow's comb home as to what's conservative or not. And and I'll just put this out there hypothetically. What if the investment in expansion would lower your private insurance premiums? Would you support it then? Serious question. And if you oppose expansion, and this is a serious question I've posed to a number of people, Rhino, and nobody will answer it. Those that oppose expansion, and by the way, I did a split-screen debate, I think I talked about this, in 2013 at public television. 2013, where I spoke in opposition of Medicaid expansion, split-screen with uh, a lawyer. His first name ex- escapes me. His last name is Eichelberger. He's a pretty well-known um, liberal in the state of Mississippi. He's, he's got a handle of cotton mouth, by the way. So that's what he was known Uh, as back then, and we debated Medicaid expansion 2013, nine years ago. And and so the question I have to pose to opponents, should the state exit-based Medicaid? And to your question, Thomas, if the hospital can't make it, let's close it. If having access to a hospital is a priority for someone, they can move somewhere else with enough population to support a hospital. Here's the problem. In the urban areas, the hospitals are failing as well. It's not just limited; it's just it's more urgent at the at the uh, rural in the rural areas than it is in the urban areas at this point. But the hospitals in the urban areas of the state of Mississippi—they're losing money too. It's not unique to the rural hospitals, so that doesn't solve the problem. He says to force me to subsidize another's health care if the hospital can't make it, let's close it. Well, I could make the same argument about. Those who live in densely populated areas footing the bill for broadband Internet to the rural population. I don't see any difference in that. That doesn't mean I'm opposed to it. I'm just pointing that out. We can go down the list. Just private insurance. What about the people who pay premiums and maintain a healthy lifestyle or just happen to be born with good DNA? And and don't consume as much services, but your premiums are paying for the people who are consuming more services, often stemming from living unhealthy lifestyles. Is that fair? We could just go down the list. And I'm not saying I have the answers to that. I'm just bringing out the question. So again, should the so-called conservatives in the state of Mississippi and those in the legislature, this is a question for you right now. Are you willing to drop a bill right now that would take Mississippi out of base Medicaid? If Medicaid expansion is bad, well, then isn't Medicaid bad? Shouldn't we exit that? It cost us. By the way, it's the number two line item in the list of of uh, spending targets in our state budgets. Medicaid number one, education number two. Medicaid comes in at just under a billion dollars a year. The federal government by the way sends Mississippi about 4.5 billion a year to pay for our Medicaid population. The federal government's Medicaid match is almost as big as our general fund budget. Think about that for a second. Coming right back with Mike McCormick, the president of Mississippi Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome back, everyone, to the Element Wealth Studios. Joining us now, Mike McCormick, President of Mississippi Farm Bureau Federation. Mike, always good to see you. Thanks for coming on.
5: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: You guys had a great event uh, celebrating your anniversary back in the fall. We really enjoyed that. Uh, top-notch, first class.
5: Well, we worked hard at it. We wanted not to have a just a meeting. We wanted to have an event that we remembered, and uh, I think we uh, pulled it off without a flaw. It was great.
1: Yeah, it sure was. Well, wanted to have you in today. Of course, the legislature is in session, and agriculture representing, comprising still, what, 30 35% of the state's economy about a third. Yeah, that's what I thought. And and so anything that they're going to be doing down there at the Capitol affects a whole lot of people in the state of Mississippi from an agricultural perspective. Anything You've got your eye on that you're you're advocating for. You'd like to see happen. Tell us about that.
5: We don't have a big uh, big uh, political ask this go around. We're we're kind of uh, watching to see what might unfold down there for us to be uh, part of. The general bills were should have all been filed by late uh, last night. So uh, we're just kind of watching all that. I guess. Uh, Gerard, one of the biggest things we do is watch uh, bills that have unintended consequences for yeah. farmers or rural people. So we'll yeah. be watching all that as it unfolds.
1: Well, is anything you're concerned about that you've seen that's sort of bubbling up there at this point? I,
5: I haven't been given uh, any uh, uh, heads up that there's something coming that we wouldn't be uh, uh, that would give us a lot of concerns. But okay, you, you never know. We'll we'll continue to watch it through the process. Okay,
1: well that's good. That's good. Um, What's going on with respect to the industry in general? And let me share this with you. I, I saw a report that I don't know that it's a problem in Mississippi yet, but uh, illegals crossing the border in Arizona that are, that are walking through, trampling through fields of uh, food products. Lettuce, I think, is, uh, was, was one of the farmers that I saw an interview with as a, as a lettuce grower and said that when that happens, they have to destroy some of the crops, that they, they can't be salvaged.
5: Well, uh, biosecurity now is is uh, is a big issue, and you can't have um, someone going through the fields and contaminating the fields in any kind of way, uh, and then have that lettuce uh, uh, test positive for an E. coli uh, or other pathogen uh, once it gets to the grocery store. So I'm sure uh, that it is an, uh, a big issue. I'm actually headed to Arizona in a, a month or so, and we're going to go to Yuma where all of those crops are being okay. grown and uh, get a first hand account of, of looking at that, and I look forward to being there.
1: Is this something that you're familiar that is uh, with in terms of happening in Mississippi? Has there been any any incidents like this?
5: Well, we're not on the border, so I don't yeah. know that that's going to be a, a problem here. We do have some, some big vegetable growers uh, down uh, near the coast, and I'm sure they're very particular about who's able to, to come into the fields uh, to make sure that they're uh, have all the right protective uh, gear on uh, before they enter the fields uh, and uh, that they've got a handle on uh, yeah. their biosecurity. So I I don't think that that will be an issue here, but I could see where uh, people that uh, are somewhere where they shouldn't be uh, could cause a lot of problems.
1: Well, from an economic perspective, though, Mike, you know, the concern is we already have high food prices that everybody is, is grappling with. The, the farmers including, in, included, they can't pass on their high input cost in many ways to the consumer. But when we're having to destroy the yield, part of the yield, well, that's going to have an inflationary effect. That's a problem.
5: That's what you're seeing with eggs, right? right? Right now, we've got a problem with avian influenza. We've lost $50 million uh, chickens nationwide, so you you 've got this supply chain issue, so we don't we certainly don 't need any of that happening
1: all right well that's incredible um, John Deere, so this has been a, a legacy problem uh, to farmers in the industry, and by the way john deere's i don't think is unique it's unique to agriculture, but for a manufacturer to uh, essentially not allow consumers of their products users of their products to perform repairs on those items where they could go just procure the necessary parts. They have the knowledge. They can work on those uh, that equipment themselves, repair it when it's down. John Deere is not allowed that, essentially, a farm. Did I state that
5: correctly? Or Probably not. I mean, we can we can repair a good bit of things on our tractors. The problem that you get into is, is the technology that's, right. that's based on the tractors. And this just isn't, isn't an issue with John Deere. We're talking about this because they signed an MOU with, uh, with Farm Bureau, and we appreciate them doing that. Uh, but uh, the, the right to repair versus right to modify – is, is, uh, is what is at stake here. So, uh, John Deere now, uh, has more IT engineers than they do yeah. mechanical engineers. So a lot of the things that we're buying on tractors, the price wise of it is based on how much, how much technology is on that tractor. Uh, and it has all of these sensors on there that tells us when something goes bad and it throws error codes up so we're in hot dusty environments and I'm working and I uh, need to get some work finished today and all of a sudden my tractor is throwing this error code and I have no idea what this code is. I think what we're looking at now is is John Deere coming back to the table saying okay we're going to give you the, the the error codes and, and what they mean we're going to give you the diagnostic tools to to be able to diagnose that and uh, we're going to we're going to uh, be a, a partner with you in this process. And you can use an outside party to come in and, and repair your tractor with you. But we're not going to give you the codes to modify the tractor. Okay. We're not going to give you the codes to actually get into the computer code and program of the tractor yeah. so you can jailbreak that. And that's that's the big issue. There's certainly parts on the tractor that I can go today and take off that aren't connected to okay. to uh, um, uh, sensors. Uh, but the, the sensors, the computer technology that's there to help the machine diagnose its own problems, uh, those are the ones that we've had problems with. I
1: appreciate with the clarification, Mike. So it, it makes sense from their perspective. They're they're looking to protect their intellectual property and that which is proprietary. And so it sounds like you guys have worked with them to come up with a way to at least address those issues that wouldn't involve having to actually get into that which is proprietary and and, uh, and patented to them, if you will, or just their IP, uh, and make these repairs in the field and not wait on them.
5: So we're certainly sort of at the beginning or the uh, taking the first steps with this and not at the finish line. There will be people that will say, other organizations that will say, we haven't gone nearly far enough, and there's lawsuits out there that uh, uh, are directed towards the equipment manufacturers uh, saying something has to change, and we should be able to get all these uh, uh, diagnostic tools and be able to to repair our own okay. equipment, and I get that, but... Farm Bureau is an is a organization, uh, the largest uh, farm organization in the, in the nation. We try to steer away from some lawsuits and unnecessary bills, and what we're doing is, is saying now we have a dialogue set up with, with John Deere. Uh, they were the first ones that come to the, came to the table and uh, sat down and talked with us. We'd certainly like uh, all the rest of the equipment manufacturers to do the same, to say we'll, we'll, we'll have at least two meetings a year, Uh, We're going to sit down and talk about uh, the issues that the farmers are having and what they need and what John Deere feels like uh, that they can uh, concede uh, during those negotiations. And uh, we look forward to being and having a seat at the table with them to continue this MOU. Okay.
1: And, you know, this is going to continue. This won't be the last of it with respect to new technology coming out, which is completely changing the agricultural business
5: oh i need to get you out on the on the farms and let you see some of that technology incredible be amazed
1: well you know a few years ago in in my public speaking i started talking about john deere when they had acquired a data center in silicon valley i said Uh john Deere is a technology company just happens to make farm implements that's That's where it's headed that's right and and which is good because that
5: technology you're talking about hit the fields. We've had the sea and spray machine okay. in Mississippi for the last couple of years. It's amazing. Now they're, they're rolling them off the assembly lines, and uh, we'll have some in the state of Mississippi next That's year.
1: That's awesome. We saw it at the show, right? We hit did. Yep. Unbelievable piece of equipment. How's the industry doing, Mike? Give us an update.
5: Well, it's it's just what you mentioned. The the profit margins are very thin uh, going into this year. The the uh, fertilizer chemicals, diesel, uh, repair parts, parts for everything is just insanely expensive. Labor costs are up, so uh, those uh, farmers don't get to set those prices in what they they sell back. We're we're at the mercy of the market. Uh, we'll just have to see how that goes into into next year. It's. Uh, 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 just because we're getting a, a larger share of of the price uh, doesn't mean it gets a larger share of the the profit going back into the farmers' pockets. Mm-hmm. It's that's pretty uh, tough margin right now.
1: Is it, it is the trajectory? Is it uh, showing that it's easing or getting worse?
5: I talked to my fertilizer uh, a guy this morning, ordering some fertilizer for myself, and he told me that it was it was it was coming down, and it looked like it was going to continue to come down. Uh, so that's that's very helpful to us farmers.
1: I hope so. Weather, how we doing there?
5: Well, it's, it's early in the process. We need a little moisture in the fields right now, but we'll need it to dry up to get to uh, <laughs> spring planting. It's never perfect for uh, a farm, Always but, a chase, isn't it? That's right.
1: <laughs> Mike McCormick, president of Mississippi Farm Bureau Federation, has been our guest here on Midday. It's always good to see you. Thanks for coming in, Mike.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Appreciate it. We'll be right back in the Element Well Studios.
0: Days with Gerard Gibbett on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Ain't nobody love you like I do. Honey, I know just what to do. I ain't much to look at, and I won't win a prize. When you come to love, and I'll open your eyes.
1: Welcome back to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Appreciate Mike coming in, sharing the news from the agricultural community. No doubt, uh, that that big machine that he was talking about, was it the sea and spray? It's got built-in artificial intelligence where it can literally hone in on a plant in the field and discern as to whether it is is uh, food, the, the crop that you're growing there, or a weed. And in, in and very precisely apply either fertilizer or some sort of weed killer, some sort of herbicide, rather than just these, you know, shotgun type approaches. That's incredible.
2: Technology, oh, yeah. AI, and machine learning are doing things in the the field of technology that seemed like sci-fi just a handful of years ago. I mean, I was reading a report earlier this morning about how. Machine learning has been applied to uh, a sensor array that uses only Wi-Fi from, say, your smartphone, like devices you have on you or Wi-Fi in the room you're in, to be able to determine not only where you are in the room with reference to other people in the room or other objects, but it can even tell, like, what pose you're standing in (laughs) with just Wi-Fi signals. Like, it had... It had a, a picture of a, a wire mesh outline of what it thought was a person in a room standing there with a hand on their hip and their head tilted back. And then you see a picture of the room from that same position. It overlays perfectly with the person standing there with a hand on their hip and their head tilted back.
1: Unbelievable. Incredible. And we're we're just getting started. Oh, yeah. We are just getting started with this. Incredible. On the C Spire text line, interesting Income tax should be illegal in the state and federal. They didn't work for the money. It's not theirs. They don't deserve any part of it. I don't see how those two statements coincide. What am I missing there?
2: I think the second part's talking about the government.
1: Okay. Uh, Okay. They didn't work for the money. It's not theirs. All right. So it begs the question, as we've discussed so many times on the program, what is the role of government, and how should it be funded? And it, it should be a question that we... Examined with regularity, honestly. But think about how we've departed from just a concept as being included in our debate. We don't talk about that. We don't. We don't ever talk about the proper role of government, and there's clearly no consensus on that. So this individual also goes on to say maybe we're just smarter in Mississippi and we know we shouldn't trust banks, referring to the metric of the banked population that shows Mississippi in last place in terms of the component of its population, which does have a banking relationship, maintains a bank account. And I honestly believe that that's a a function as much as anything – uh, just lack of education and, and, I think, mentoring in the home, something that's sort of passed down through the generations. And yeah. I, I asked the question of this person who texted us, can you cite an example of why we, quote, shouldn't trust banks? He said they're all a bunch of crooks, just like the government. So I'm still looking for the example. Huh? I mean, I've not ever seen a reason in my history of doing business with banks, both on a personal basis and considerable amount of business on a commercial basis, I've never seen any reason not to,
2: quote, trust a bank. I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, I've... Is that a holdover, uh, a generational holdover from the Great Depression? Yeah, but... When you had runs on banks and the bank didn't have your money and that kind of stuff? a run on the bank would cause that i mean that's that that's here today of course they're, they're
1: insurance and you know they make it very clear hey you're insured to this amount that all of course
2: which i mean would, if you're not banked more than likely you don't have six figures to worry about because right. that's what's covered by fdic right like 200 250000 250,
1: 250 i think is what the face value of the insurance is
2: as an it's example kind of hard to pile up $250,000 if you're not banked.
1: Yeah. But I think everybody's probably experienced a situation where you had like fraudulent charges against your your bank account, even your standard checking account, your cash accounts. You've seen fraudulent charges on your credit cards if you have those. But in my experience, those have always been resolved fairly whenever I've had that. They just charge it back to the merchant if the merchant in fact didn't follow their contractual obligations in accepting the charge. The good news is it wasn't so long ago, you remember this, where folks were incredibly hesitant to buy anything online. Oh my gosh, they'll steal my credit card. And it was happening. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you did have credit card information that was uh, subject to, uh, to being extracted for nefarious purposes, but if you look at the controls that have been in the technology and the way that's advanced, it's pretty rare, actually. In fact, most of the time when there is fraudulent use of a credit card, it's generally because the credit card owner has has responded to some of these schemes and scams, phishing scams. Yeah, they've been phished. Yeah, and just don't know it at the time, think they're doing what they should be doing.
2: Yeah, you get an email from what looks like your bank saying, hey, we need you to cover this fee that you didn't realize you had. Please enter your account information. Bingo. They got you.
1: Yeah. So that it, it comes more from there. And unfortunately, it's the elderly population that's more apt to trust, it appears, and not be able to discern between a legitimate situation versus a, a scam. Heck, I got one yesterday. You need to call Amazon or log in here to Amazon right now because your Amazon's been shut down. And you know that's a crock. But people do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't invest the time and money. Uh, yeah, that's why they call it fishing.
2: It. When you go fishing and you throw your line out there, you're not catching a fish on every single cast. You're just trying to see who responds. And somebody will, unknowingly,
1: unsuspecting, and they'll get hosed, unfortunately. So I'm not prepared to say, yeah, all the banks are crooks. Without banks, there's no economy, just, just so you'll know. So if we all just operated without the use of the banking industry, the financial industry, we don't have an economy. And it's that really this country. And by the way, you guys probably know this. I'm sure you do, Rhino. It was the brain shot of Thomas Jefferson. Pretty much our modern banking system today is based on um, the structure, the design that, that – um, that he devised a long time ago he's a pretty smart guy we can't talk about him right he's a slave owner and he's canceled and all that kind of stuff i guess thomas and greenwood says the proper role of government as defined by plato and our founders is what i base my stances on i've never supported any legislations any legislation that benefit benefits me at the expense of another and never will okay fair fair enough uh, Thomas, but the the challenge—if you look at the proper role of government as defined by really just deep, thoughtful conservatives—it gets easily hijacked because there is still some non-specific, some subjective aspects of that. And then you just go from there, and the next thing you know, we keep morphing and morphing and evolving and, and distorting, and it doesn't resemble anything that it originally did. But, and that's where the problem is, in general, is that there's just never any discussion about the proper role, in my view. But serious question that I posed earlier is, should the state of Mississippi totally exit Medicaid? Should we tell the federal government, I've seen some calls for that in the state of Mississippi, we need to reclaim our sovereignty. You've seen seen this before. I don't know exactly what that means, but does that mean we should secede from the United States?
2: We do have a correction on the ceasefire text line. It was Alexander Hamilton, not Thomas Jefferson. Okay. That was the debate at the time between Hamilton and Jefferson. Jefferson said it wasn't an enumerated power of the government to have a national bank and Hamilton argued for it.
1: Oh, we right. The na- the national bank aspect of it, but but the Federal Reserve system, like it or not, I thought was Jefferson's brainchild. But I could be wrong about that. He says Jefferson opposed the banking system. Okay. One of those founders is where all this came from. How about that? Is that an accurate statement? I appreciate the correction. Been a long time since I looked into that when I was studying money and banking in school. I just remember that. For some reason I thought it was Jefferson that devised the Federal Reserve System. We'll take a look at that. Hmm. We're coming right back. We got half an hour left here on middays in the Element Well studio. Stay with us.
3: Joy.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: People try to put us to down. Talking about my generation. Just because we get around. Talking about my generation. Things they do look awful. Talking oh. about my generation. Welcome
1: back. Middays Super Talk Mississippi. The Wealth Studios. Go to MyElementWealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income and guarantees. I'll be attending a little economic update sponsored by Element Wealth this evening. Tomorrow, I'll be down in Lincoln County, Brookhaven, Mississippi, looking forward to addressing uh, the Serviteum Club down there. Lucian Smith filling in back in the studios Thursday and Friday. You just told me that it's somebody's birthday
2: from Mississippi, a famous person. Oh, yeah. The one and only James Earl Jones. Yeah. From? From Arkabutla, Mississippi. Well, it's his birthday today. He was born in 1931. He's 92 years old. Gosh, what a voice. Oh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Happy
1: birthday, dear Viles DeVito. <laughs> Can't stop laughing at that.
2: I actually, talking about James Earl Jones, I learned something about him, gosh, it's been a couple weeks ago now, but it was recently, that it makes sense. I just didn't put two and two together. He had a cameo on a TV show called The Big Bang Theory, which is a yeah, sitcom about a bunch of nerds, college professor, physicists, that kind of stuff. Huh. And he had a cameo where he played himself, James Earl Jones. And there was another cameo in the same episode by Carrie Fisher. Yeah. And you you know Star Wars. Yeah, James yeah. Earl Jones was the voice of Darth Vader. Carrie Fisher played Plin- Princess Leia. Spoiler alert, his daughter. But they had never met and never been in the same oh, scene together before that episode of Big Bang Theory. Because think about it. He was doing the voice of Darth Vader. Yes. He wasn't in the suit for filming. Right. So, they'd been a part of this huge Star Wars universe. They'd never been together. How about so that? So, it took Big Bang Theory to bring James Earl Jones and Carrie Fisher together. So cool. Well, his voice,
1: unmistakable, obviously. Yeah, really something. Appreciate that. By the way, I was wrong, and our listener, we got some smart folks out there about Jefferson versus Hamilton. Jefferson, in fact, opposed central banking. It was Hamilton, so I apologize for... Jefferson it. wanted the states to have their own banks. That's exactly right. He said they should charter their own banks. We should not have national banks. He said it, quote, unfairly favored wealthy businessmen in urban areas over farmers. He was uh, more into the agricultural business. He was an, an agrarian. I mean, he and that's where he thought the country was headed. He kind of missed that a little bit,
2: Is Visionary as he was, I mean, but... Well, I mean, we were agrarian for, what, century and a half, almost two? I remember
1: studying this in college, literally, in economics class, and it was... And this economics professor was fairly conservative, and he was talking about the, the history of subsidies, federal subsidies, to the farming industry. No secret there, right? And... I want to say that the way he described the history of the agricultural business in this country was that a third of our population in the 1930s were involved somehow in the agriculture industry, roughly a third, a population uh, about a third of what it is today, maybe, maybe a little more than a third, but a substantial number of our population. A third is a lot today. And by the way, we had a hard time feeding everybody, literally back then. Oh yeah, today, three percent maybe of our population, our workforce involved in the agricultural industry, and we feed the world in many respects. We export a lot of food.
2: And the grain yields are up what four, five hundred percent in the last five to six decades? A function of
1: technological advances, just like Mike was describing here. I mean, those, these advances in just equipment from John Deere clearly increases yield, decreases cost. That's the idea. These machines can run, without a human on them, 24 hours a day. I mean, you can just think about how that changes the dynamics with respect to cost and production. So that's good stuff. I, um, But I wanted to apologize. I, I misspoke. I said it was Jefferson. It was Hamilton. I knew it was one of those founders. And it is true they did have a debate about that, and they saw things a little differently. And that's how we ended up with what we got today. Kind of a combination, it seems like, of the two founders' vision. Joe and Meridian says... I think you said patient default on medical bills is part of the hospital's woes. Low-income families that have insurance can't afford even the deductible or copay. My group, Blue Cross Insurance, low-premium silver plan, has a $4,800 deductible and an $8,700 out-of-pocket max. That would be annually, by the way. The company switched to this after Obamacare. If this is an example, the majority of families can't afford to use it. So, Joe, just to clarify... It was Obamacare that placed limits on out-of-pocket cost for over an annual on an annual basis and over the lifetime. It uh, it placed limits on that, and it also placed it eliminated the caps of coverage. Meaning, you used to be able to buy policies that said, "Okay, here's how much we'll cover in a year. Once you get over that, you're on your own." It eliminated. That feature of insurance, but it also put a cap on annual out-of-pocket costs that didn't exist before Obamacare. It started out, by the way, as I recall, at like sixty-five hundred dollars per person uh, in a household, uh, a family thirteen thousand dollars, either the the um, the married couple. For all people in the household, thirteen thousand bucks. Sixty five hundred if you're an individual. Thirteen thousand for a household. Over the years, that's increased. It's now ninety one hundred for an individual. Eighteen two. It's always double for a family. So a family could have coverage that stipulates the maximum out of pocket cost under the law of eighteen thousand two hundred dollars. I agree with you, Joe. There are a lot of people, they can't afford that. They don't have the disposable income. Yes, that is a problem uh, for hospitals in that they're unable to collect the patient responsibility, even though insurance has paid their portion. They can't get the unpaid portion from the the patients. I understand it's expensive, but if they reduced... So your deductible, by the way, Joe, and your out-of-pocket max is below um, the maximum below the maximum you said 8700 the maximum this year is 182 you're almost ten thousand dollars below the maximum if it's for an individual by the way uh, you're about half of the maximum if that's what you're talking about there so it, if that uh, it was the Obamacare that implemented those standards before that it was kind of the Wild West but of course premiums went up. So they're saying, yeah, we'll cover everything over there. This is the maximum you'll pay. You may go to the hospital and run up a million-dollar tab, which is quite possible these days. But on an annual basis, the most you're going to have to pay uh, is eighteen two. That would be for you and everybody in your family. A year. We got the rest of it. Okay, your premiums are going up as a result of that. that that's part of the problem. So, so Joe, if, if a law was passed that reduced those annual um out of pocket maximums if it reduced that well they're just going to raise the premiums to offset that that means they got to cover more of it that's i mean that's
2: the, already an option that's why you have different levels of premiums that's that's right if you pay more for your premium your deductible is lower that's right that's
1: exactly right it's all it's all based on you know the cost sharing arrangement essentially between the subscriber, and the insurer. And and this is no uh, no different in this particular case. So that's... And this is what I said 10 years ago before this thing was passed. Yeah, all this sounds great on the surface. I mean, I'm not going to have limits, no limitations on annual cost or, or lifetime costs. They're going to max my out-of-pocket amount, uh, have this minimal essential coverage, free wellness care. Just go down the list. Uh, and by the way, if, if at least 80%... Of, of a premium income is not paid out by an insurer in claims, what's called the medical loss ratio, the claims ratio, well, then they send rebates back out to you. All that sounds great, but it costs money. And while I'm certainly not defending insurance companies here, if you go look at the detailed financial statements of the top insurance, health insurance providers in the country, they don't make a whole lot of money. If you stripped all their profit out, just zero profit, you would essentially uh, be talking about a figure that is about 1%, 1% of total health care costs in this country, which are approaching $4 trillion a year. For healthcare in this country, that's the total healthcare economy, the healthcare GDP. If you strip that out of total uh, U.S. GDP uh, uh, from all industries, from all sources, it's about four trillion a year. Uh, just under that, we're talking about one percent is the annual combined profits of the insurance companies. I'm not sure that's. The place to look for the solution to this problem. Coming right back on Middays. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk, Mississippi.
1: Everyone, midday super talk, Mississippi Herschel on the ceasefire text line sent us an Instagram post from Charlie Kirk. I haven't seen this. Have you, Rhino? You see that about Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, the Democrat from Texas, has introduced a legislation called the Leading Against White Supremacy Act of 2023, which would make it a federal hate crime for whites to question open border immigration. Advocate for preserving America's culture and traditional demographic makeup, or even criticize minorities.
2: It's, it's every day. It's uh, we're just. Well, you got to remember, this is the same woman that asked about the flag on Mars. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> ah, ain't real bright. Thanks for sending
1: that, Herschel. Says, great show. Thank you, Herschel. No, I haven't seen that. I'm not surprised, though. Charlie Kirk responded, oh, sorry. I forgot that freedom of speech is racist. It does seem like we're headed in that direction. Does it not? Dan in Hattiesburg says, to be fair, though, Gerard, you've probably forgotten more of your college education than many present college students have learned. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, Dan, I'm not sure if I should accept that as a compliment or if I should be worried. Well, maybe a little of both. Golly, I'm still trying to find the average family that got their premiums reduced by 2500 Yeah, that was the commitment that Barack Obama made, which was a complete farce ruse that they knew was wrong. But, but I know it's shocking they lied for votes and for power and to pass legislation. If you like your doctor, you can keep him. Yeah. That doesn't. He just seems to have skirted for that lie. Because that happened in his first term, and he got reelected pretty handily. We seem to forget that we do not have a right to health care. Health care is a business. If the customer can't pay, then they should be forced, shouldn't be forced to treat them. Shouldn't be. That's Kevin on the road. First, I totally agree with you, Kevin, and I have expressed that. Uh, in speaking and in writing, that that this this idea that we all have a right to health care, honestly, is is tantamount to saying that you have the right to the work product of others. You don't. Health care is the work product of others. It's not equivalent to those unalienable rights that are granted by our Creator, that do not flow from government. That's the difference. I completely agree with you. And so the analogy I've often made is, well if somebody tomorrow invents a drug that, I don't know, cures any common disease, diabetes, right? Cost a lot of money, big old problem. But the cost of that treatment, whatever it might be. Maybe it's the transplantation of a functioning pancreas. You know, that's actually being worked on right now as a cure for diabetes. But let's just say that that procedure cost, I don't know, a billion dollars. Do you have a right to that? You see, that's the problem. And we keep, I've said it before, we keep inventing more care. It's great. It improves the quality of life. It, it, It improves mortality rates. But it costs money. So how do we deal with that? It's complicated, and I think it does beg some uh, uh, some discussion, some thoughtful discussion, reasonable discussion by lots of smart people representing just all the disciplines that are touched here, that are involved. Mo says, "I'm blessed to have the medical insurance that I have under Tricare, yes, yeah, for the military." I was in the emergency room November fifteenth, and my portion of the hospital bill was eighty-seven bucks. I haven't got the radiology bill. But it'll be something like that. Of course, the problem is most like Medicare and Medicaid, those government programs all reimburse below provider costs, below the cost um, incurred to deliver those services. That's the fundamental problem here. And so, we in the private insurance market, we pay uh, substantially increased premiums to cover the cost of uninsured care. In, in those programs, such as TRICARE, Medicare, Medicaid, that reimbursed below cost. That's why you got the $10 aspirin. That's to cover the 10 aspirins that they prescribed uh, that got no payment for, that they got no payment for. And that's just how the model works, and it's not an easy thing to, to fix. So uh, on the c text line, our person that corrected me about the Hamilton versus Jefferson, and I do appreciate that, said he got – he heard the explanation, and Hamilton is one of my heroes. So it's a lot of people that come down on – it's an interesting debate, isn't it? you Are a Jefferson person or a Hamilton person because they had lively debates, often did not agree? with a lot of things. You revealed your age of being a a college student when you said the professor was conservative, not today. Tim and McGee said the same thing. He really was, though, and he taught economics. You'd be surprised. There are still enclaves of conservative academians in higher ed. Most of them do live in the business schools, engineering schools somewhat. You get over into the... uh, um, the more social oriented disciplines, liberal arts and so forth. Nope, don't see a lot over there. We're out of time here today. Lucian in tomorrow. Back with you on Thursday. Appreciate you tuning in. By the way, the healthcare economy, 4.3 trillion. Stay safe. God bless everyone.
0: A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.